You're listening to audio from Seven Mile Road Church in Waltham, Massachusetts, just outside of Boston. If you'd like to check out more of our resources or learn more about our church, please visit sevenmilewaltham.com. So we all love a good story. We're all story people. Every single person is. Whether uh, maybe you're a TV person and you think of your favorite TV series or you're a, a movie person and there's that one movie that uh, is, I'd call it a rewatchable. You can just sort of watch it over and over and over again. Or some of you are more novel people. You're like readers um, and, and, and you have those books that you just absolutely love. They capture your imagination. But I wonder if you've ever had this experience, I'm sure you have, where you're, you're, you're working through a great story, movie, TV show, book, you, you absolutely love it, then it comes to the end, and the ending is terrible. Have you ever had that happen? And it just, uh, I mean, they, they don't tie up loose ends, right? The finale doesn't bring any sense of, you know, justice that needs to be served, and it leaves all these questions unanswered, and all of a sudden, right, that, that story you love so much, it's, it's just tainted, right? It, it didn't end well. And the reason is because when we're, we're listening to stories, reading stories, watching movies, whatever it is, we want that sense of resolve at the end of a story, right? That's what we would call that. We're looking for resolve. And so when it doesn't come, it's very, very frustrating. It's just not as good, right? So like if the empire strikes back, the Jedi has to return. That's just the way the story works. And so if it, it ended after movie two, there would be no resolve. Some of you are looking at me like, you're a nerd. That's just, right, that, that's a, a common example. Now, the need for resolve as we're thinking about stories is, is heightened uh, to an even greater sense when there's great injustice in the story that needs to be made right. We've, we feel that need for, for resolve even more. Um, Sarah Colleton, who's a TV producer and executive producer, she was being interviewed about this several years ago, about series finales. She's worked on all these famous TV shows. And she said this. She said, whether you want to call it retribution, which is, a li- is slightly too biblical for my tastes, there's some need for moral judgment that accumulates with these characters, which they cannot escape. She's getting at that need for resolve, for justice. She goes on to say, this person is not a Christian, she goes on to say that she's not prepared to call it retribution, but she knows, she just has this sense deep down that all of us have, right? If something is going to end well, there must be resolve. Justice must be served. Well, this morning we're, we're in our second to last sermon in the book of Esther. We're going to finish up the book next week. So we're nearing the end and we're, we're approaching this. You could view this like a two-part season finale, if you will, right? We're approaching the end. And last week we were in chapter seven and we saw a little bit of resolve, didn't we? We saw Haman, the villain of the story, that, that he was killed. And this great reversal has taken place in the story. Haman, who was once exalted by the king, he's, he's been brought low. He's been executed on his own gallows that he created to kill who? To kill Mordecai. And then Mordecai is exalted by the king. This great reversal. That was chapter 7. 
But there's a, a major problem here. There's still this lack of resolve in the story as we come to chapters 8 and 9. Because Haman's edict has gone out to all of Persia already. The date is set that the Persians have permission to annihilate the Jews. That day still stands, right? And so how is this problem, this great injustice, going to be resolved? That's that's the question of our passage this morning. How will God's people be rescued from this coming day of violence against them? Even though Haman's gone, the edict still stands. How's that resolve going to come? And so we see here, if we were going to just sum up this passage in a sentence, we see here in in, uh, chapters 8, and then we're also going to go, we didn't read it, but we're going to go to chapter 9, verse 19. Here's what we see. God brings salvation for his people through a selfless plea from Esther and a just decree from Mordecai that leads to a joyful celebration of the Jews. God brings his salvation for his people through a selfless plea from Esther and a just decree from Mordecai that leads to a joyful celebration of the Jews. Three things. You hear that there? A selfless plea, a just decree, and a joyful celebration. And I'm going to make the argument, as I think scriptures do, that this isn't just the story of Esther and Mordecai and the Jews in Persia. This is our story as well. We too are brought salvation through a selfless plea A just decree that leads to a joyful celebration. And so let's jump in. Number one, a selfless plea. So chapter 8 begins by continuing to tell us about this great reversal that we saw last week in chapter 7. Haman, if you remember earlier in the book, he's exalted as essentially the prime minister. He can do do everything. He's second only to the king. We saw that in chapter 3, but now he's been killed. And Mordecai, who's going to be killed by Haman, has been exalted. And then chapter 8, verse 1 starts, On that day, King Ahasuerus gave to, to Queen Esther the house of Haman, the enemy of the Jews. This was custom. If an enemy of the state was killed, the property belonged to the king. He could give it to whoever he wants. He gives it to, uh, to Esther. And Mordecai came before the king, for Esther had told uh, what he was to her. And the king took off his signet ring... And that which he had taken from Haman, and he gave it to Mordecai. And Esther set Mordecai over the house of Haman. So, so we read also here that the king learns that Mordecai is Esther's family member. Remember, Mordecai was a cousin, but he's essentially like a father. He adopted Esther and, and raised her. And then Esther gets Haman's property. The king then exalts Mordecai to the highest place, takes the ring. The image here is he takes the ring off of the dead man's finger and puts it on Mordecai, another, another reversal that we see happening. Now we read this and we go, all right, there, there's the resolve. Right? The villain's dead. Right? The man unjustly sentenced to death, Mordecai, he's rescued, he's living the dream, he's exalted. Esther and Mordecai's brave plan worked. All set, right? Well, if Esther only cared about herself, in her own well-being, if Mordecai only cared about himself in his own well-being, that may be true. The story may end here, but but that's not the case because she knows, Esther knows, that even though she's good, 
She's all set. She's, she, there's no threat to her. Haman's gone. Mordecai, her beloved family member, is, is good. She knows that the decree to kill the Jews still stands. See, Haman's uh, vendetta wasn't just against Mordecai, right? It was against this entire people, the entire people of God in Persia. He was so evil that he planned to wipe out an entire group of people, and it was such a deep plan that even after he's dead, it's continuing on. There's a bit of a side lesson for us here about the the power of sin and evil, right? It's never isolated to just one person. When Haman died, his wicked plan continued. Sin and evil spreads like wildfire affecting those around us. And because of this, Esther's intervening work is not finished. So we read in in verses 3 through 7. What does she do? Then Esther spoke again to the king. She fell at his feet and wept and pleaded with him to avert the evil plan of Haman the Agagite and the plot that he had devised against the Jews. When the king held out the golden scepter to Esther, Esther rose and stood before the king and she said, If it please the king, and if I have found favor in his sight, and if the thing seems right before the king, and I am pleasing in his eyes, let an order be written to revoke the letters devised by Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadetha which he wrote to destroy the Jews who are in all the provinces of the king. For how can I bear to see the calamity that is coming to my people? Or how can I bear to see the destruction of my kindred? Then the king said to Queen Esther and to Mordecai the Jew, Behold, I've given you Esther, the house of Haman, and have hanged him on the gallows because he intended to lay hands on the Jews. Okay, We'll stop right there for a moment. So we've seen throughout the book thus far, we've seen Esther act with extreme care as she approaches the king, right? We've drawn that out, that she knows that he's a powerful man, that he's also egotistical, that he also has a, a, an anger problem, that he's very self-centered. She can't just barge in and start asking for things. If he doesn't put that golden scepter down, whoever approaches his, in his, his presence could be killed in an instant. She knows that. So she's been patient and she's been shrewd. And I mean that in the best sense of the word. But notice the difference here. Now she falls down in desperation before the king. She's weeping. She's pleading with the king to avert this evil plan to kill her people. See, this is another reversal that we see, right? What do we see in chapter 7? Haman is falling down at Esther's feet to plead, not for anyone else's life, he doesn't care about that, but only for himself. Here, Esther is falling down at the feet of the king, not for herself, but to plead for the life of her her people. there, There seems to have been, if you consider Esther as a whole, there seems to have been a change in Esther over time. If you go back to chapter four, do you remember Mordecai, he makes an appeal to Esther. He he almost has to convince her that she needs to do the right thing. Remember that for such a time as this speech? But now Esther has fully stepped into her role as the one to intervene. And she's not pleading on behalf of herself. She's pleading on behalf of the people. I think of the Apostle Paul here in Romans chapter 9. I wonder if, if Paul had Esther's plea in mind when he himself was 
pleading for the Jewish people. Listen to his heart for his unsaved Jewish brothers and sisters. He says, I'm speaking the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit. I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. They're Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. Paul says, I wish... I could even lay down my own life, my own salvation, so that my my Jewish brothers and sisters who reject the gospel could be saved. You hear that? A weeping, a pleading, anguish as he considers the condition of his beloved people, those who are without salvation. Friends, I think the lesson here is is clear for us as Christians. When God God saves you, you, you don't just say, well, Right, good. I'm right with God. I'll, I'll, leave, uh, I'll leave everyone else around me to sort of figure it out themselves because I'm good. You, you don't settle in the comforts of, of, of this world without concern for others. No, what happens? Like Paul, like Esther, your, your eyes are opened to those around you who are headed toward destruction. Your heart is is to be stirred for them. You're moved to plead for them in prayer, to to share the gospel with them that they too may be saved. We see this in Esther's plea. We see this in Paul's plea. And friends, this is the very heart of Christ. We see this all throughout the ministry of Christ. B.B. Warfield, which is a great name, by the way, B.B., I I forgot what the initials are, Uh, but, but he has this great essay I would commend to you. It's short. You could read it in one or two sittings. It's free online. It's called The Emotional Life of Our Lord. And he goes through and he examines all of the, the, the complex emotions that Jesus experienced in his humanity. And do you know what he, he realizes as he comes to the conclusion that of all the emotions Jesus experiences, do you know what the most common and prominent emotion in the, the, the human life of Christ is? It is compassion. It's compassion for those who are weak for those who are in need of salvation. And we see this when Jesus looks over Jerusalem. Much like Paul weeping for Jews who would reject him, Jesus who would reject Christ, Jesus looks over Jerusalem and what happens? Luke 19 verse 41 and when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it. He wept saying, "Would that you even you had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they're hidden from your eyes. He's saying, these people are reject, going to reject me. And it stirs my heart with compassion. It breaks my heart. I weep for them. Compassionate, selfless, lamenting and pleading for those who are in need of salvation. That's what Esther's doing. That's what Paul did. That's what Christ does. And friends, that's what we are called to do. Now, I, I think... I don't want to project my own struggles on you, but I, I think you can probably relate to me here. I think we put this off in our minds for a number of reasons. A, a major one being to talk about, to think about the reality of, of coming judgment, the reality of hell, which those are non-negotiable doctrines of the Christian faith. To talk about those or think about those, they're very offensive to our modern sensibilities. 
So maybe that's why we push, push those things out of our mind. Maybe that's why we're not as stirred with compassion to those who don't know Christ. Friends, offensive truth is truth nonetheless. And so I'd ask you, I'd ask myself, are you compassionate as you consider those around you in need of salvation? Are, are you stir, stirred to selflessly plea with God in prayer for their salvation? God God's, has a sense of humor. When, when he's trying to teach me things and convict me of sin, it's, it usually comes from multiple angles. And last week, we were doing our ox track study, our prospective elders training on Sunday night, and the topic was mission. And as we were going through the lesson, you know, we do these workbook lessons before we come together and discuss, the Holy Spirit was just convicting me on my lack of zeal as I consider the lost people around me in my life. And then I open up to, to start studying at the beginning of the week, Esther 7, and I, I see this compassionate selfless plea from Esther and I, I see it in Paul and I, I see it in, in Jesus and the Holy Spirit just was bringing this conviction that I have personally neglected this, right? My prayer life, I, I've neglected praying for, pleading for, and really just having a sense of the seriousness of the condition of those who are around me who are, judgment is coming for them. And there were, there were three names in particular that I realized, I haven't prayed for this person in a while, I haven't talked to this person in a while, and there was one who I said, I talked to him last week and I had absolutely no concern or thought about the condition of his soul. And the Spirit brought great conviction to me. I've become selfish in my Christianity. Think, think about how easy it is for us to do that, right? To busy ourselves with, with church life, church friends, church gatherings, just the comforts of life. Maybe that was Esther before, right? Got accustomed to the, the comforts of life in the palace. But now, even though she could just coast through life, no, she pleads for those she loves who are in need of salvation. Friends, we must plead before the king who holds the lives of all people in his hands. That's the call for us. And that's number one, a selfless plea. Number two, as we move on, we see a just decree, a just decree. Look at verse 8, it says, but you, so the king continues on, he says, I've given you all of Haman's property, but also you may write as you please with regard to the Jews in the name of the king and seal it with the king's ring. For an edict written in the name of the king and sealed with the king's ring cannot be revoked. So the king's scribes were summoned at that time in the third month, which is the month of Sivan, on the 23rd day, and an edict was written according to all that Mordecai had commanded concerning the Jews, the satraps, the governors, the officials, and the provinces from India to Ethiopia, 127 provinces, to each in its own script, and to each people in its own language, and also to the Jews in their script and their language. Okay, so it's kind of hard to understand what's, what's going on here. King Ahasuerus, he won't revoke the, the previous edict. He won't just say, let's take that back. And uh, w there's, there's difference of, of opinion here on why. Some say, well, Persian law, you couldn't revoke edicts. You could, you could just make edicts to cancel out edicts. This might surprise you, but sometimes the government's not inefficient or not efficient, right? And that's what we see happening here. Others believe, and I think it probably is a mix of both. Others believe he could have done it. He's just prideful. 
And if he goes, if he goes, you know, let's undo that one, then he's thinking of his constituency, and he's like, ah, then I'll look like I'm flip-flopping, and, you know, politicians don't like to look like that, and so maybe he just refuses. Whatever, whatever it is, we don't know. What he does is he gives them full, free reign to write a new edict. I'm not going to revoke it, but you can write any edict that you want and to sort of counteract this edict, and so that's what he does. So they, they write this counter-edict or decree, you could call it, and, and it's two months after Haman's edict was written okay, and sent out, sent out to the entire kingdom. And so they send this out on the fastest horses. That's a, that's a, a big point the narrator wants to emphasize, is that this is getting out as fast as possible. There's, this is urgent. This is not like um, first-class mail, which is the slowest, right? This is like Amazon Prime one day. There's a drone dropping this on your doorstep kind of speed. And then we read, what does this decree allow? What is this decree? Verse 11, the king allowed the Jews who were in every city to gather and defend their lives, to destroy, kill, and annihilate any armed force of any people or province that might attack them, children and women included, and to plunder their goods. On one day, throughout all the provinces of King Ahasuerus, on the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month of Adar, a copy of what was written was to be issued as a decree in every province, being publicly displayed to all the people, and the Jews were, re- were to be ready on that day to take vengeance on their enemies. Now the narrator uses the exact same language from Haman's edict back in chapter 3 for this new edict. Haman's plan was to destroy, kill, and annihilate the Jews. Mordecai's decree here gives the Jews legal authority to defend themselves and thus destroy, kill, and annihilate those who try to kill them. If you look at 3.13 and 8.11, they're nearly identical. That's another reversal that we see in the book. Then, if we jump to chapter 9, which we didn't read earlier, we see this actually happen. So we're jumping nine months later. This is the day when the Persians were supposed to attack the Jews, they were still planning on it even though Haman is gone, and now the Jews have a, a decree to, to, to respond and to a, attack back in self-defense. In verse 1 of chapter 9, we read this, now in the 12th month, which is the month of Adar, on the 13th day of the same, when the king's command and edict were about to be carried out on the very day when the enemies of the Jews hoped to gain mastery over them, the reverse occurred. Another reversal. The Jews gained mastery over those who hated them. And listen to this. We're supposed to feel the weight of this. Verse 5 of chapter 9. The Jews struck all their enemies with the sword, killing and destroying them, and did as they pleased to those who hated them. In, In Susa, the citadel itself, the Jews killed and destroyed 500 men and also killed all these guys, these ten sons of Haman, the son of Hamadetha, the enemy of the Jews, but they laid no hand on the plunder. Then verses 15 through 16 of chapter 9. On the next day, the Jews were in Susa, gathered also on the 14th day of the month of Adar. They killed 300 men in Susa, but they laid no hands on the plunder. Now the rest of the Jews who were with, who were in the king's provinces, also gathered to defend their lives and got relief from the enemies and killed 75,000 of those who hated them, but they laid no hands on the plunder. Now, if you don't feel it already, this is a, this is a tough text, okay? 
however you slice it, God's people violently kill their enemies. Over 75,000 people. So this is one of those passages, and if you read, you read the commentaries from those who don't necessarily trust in the inerrancy of Scripture, you'll, you'll feel this. You'll, you'll, you'll feel the pull here as you read those. This is one of those passages that makes us cringe a bit. So, but before we cringe, we have to make sure we understand what's happening here. This is actually a just action. And in order to understand that, we, we need to notice a few key things here. First, the scriptures emphasize the language of self-defense here in the Jewish response. Chapters 8, verses 11, chapters 9, verse 16, the decree was allowing the Jews to defend themselves. And the way to do that was by having this edict that was exactly like the previous one. So this wasn't some bloodthirsty massacre, but self-defense. One more modern example that maybe you studied in school would, would be the Warsaw Ghetto Uprising in 1943. I don't know if you studied that. I remember studying that in history class, this act of Jewish resistance against Nazi occupation. They were fighting for freedom against evil. They were using violence, yes, but it was in self-defense. And if we now look back at that, that Warsaw Ghetto Uprising by the Jews in that community, we would say, yes, that was, that was a just response to evil similar to what's happening here, language of self-defense. But second, the hardest verse here is, is verse 11 of chapter 8, because it speaks of annihilating everybody, and including women and children. You notice that? That's tough. But while that decree in verse 11 speaks of killing uh, women and children, the numbers given later by those who uh, were killed by the Jews speak only of men and those who hated them. Okay? So there's nothing in the text that tells us that the Jews in self-defense were bursting into houses and attacking women and children as they sleep or, or anything like that. The reason the language is there is because it's a counter-decree. But the text reads as if they were simply defending themselves. They weren't going over and beyond to try and violently kill the innocent. Now third thing to understand. Though the decree says, notice this, they could have plundered the Persians, just like the Persians could have plundered the Jews. Meaning, not only could they have killed them, but they could have taken all of their stuff, ransacked their houses. We see that in chapter 9, verses 10, 15, um, and 16. But we see that in those verses, it's repeated, no one lays hands on the plunder. The Jews do not touch anything. Why? Because their, their goal is not selfish gain. Their goal is to simply defend themselves. It's simply self-protection. Okay? So I, I think those things help us understand, okay, here's what's actually happening here. Self-defense. They didn't respond. It looks like they didn't kill these women and children. They weren't taking the plunder. They're defending themselves. But fourth, and this is most important. This is the most important one. This passage shows us that God is a righteous God who will judge his enemies. Even with those three caveats that we just worked through, you look at that number 75, 76,000 people dead, and you go, ah, that might seem unjust. But we have to remember here, Haman and his followers... Their representative, remember he's an Agagite, they're representative of the enemies of God. They hate God and this decree shows us that God 
will not only save his people, but he will also overcome the enemy of his people. That's, that's the lesson here. But this sort of leads to, okay, but, but what does that mean for us today, right? Uh, what does that mean for the people of God, meaning all who trust in Christ, the church, the Christian church? What does that mean for us today? Because Ephesians 6.12 says, we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. So how, how does this apply to us? And I find uh, this, this list from Old Testament scholar Tremper Longman, it's very helpful here. He points out these different phases of understanding fighting, the fighting theme in the history of salvation. Okay, And so forgive me, this is going to get a bit seminary-ish for a moment, but it has a purpose. So uh, list, listed them here, I think. Are they on there? Yes, okay, so if you think of the story of Scripture, the history of salvation from beginning to today, Tremper Longman says here's a good way to think of the fighting theme of God's people. Number one, first, God fights for Israel. He's fighting for his people, right? Think of the enemies against them who attack them. Number two, God fights against Israel. When they turn away in idolatry, they're judged for it. Number three, God gives hope for future uh, reconciliation. We see this in the prophets. They're not only saying God's going to judge you for turning away from God. They're saying there's hope is coming. Uh, rescue is coming. Number four, then Jesus, the, the divine warrior, defeats evil by his cross. Then number five, the coming day of Christ when he will destroy all evil once for all. So if you think of the fighting theme of God's people, the battle theme of God's people, this, these five things sort of give you a, a wonderful summary. Now, the book of Esther fits in one through three. You see that? God's fighting for Israel because they're under threat from Haman. But God is also, in a sense, fighting against Israel. The reason they're in Persia is because they've been, uh, they've been judged. They've been taken into captivity for their idolatry. But it's also a period of history for the Jews where prophets are saying, don't worry, deliverance is coming. You're going to come back. Right? So they're in one through three. Now we, today, are where? We're between four and five. You see that? Jesus has come. He has uh, dealt the death blow of all evil on his cross, an empty grave, and now we are awaiting the coming day of Christ when he will destroy all evildoers. And in that time, our battle is not against flesh and blood, right? but against the rulers, authorities, cosmic powers of this present darkness. It's a primarily a spiritual battle. It doesn't mean we don't work for justice here. We absolutely do because we are representatives of Christ in this world. But, do you see what this does for us? This helps us point this battle passage, and really all battle passages in the Old Testament, helps us point to Jesus Christ. So if you think of it that way, do you see now how this passage is pointing us to the gospel? What does Esther 8 and 9 show us? Salvation through judgment. Right? God brings salvation to his people by judging evil. That is the gospel in some, is it not? That's what Jesus accomplished. I, I think of Christ's final words on, on the cross. 
or final decree, if you will. What, what did he say? He said, it is finished. Well, what's finished? The work of salvation. I've accomplished it. The justice of God, judgment against sin, our sin, has been poured out on the Son. There's the judgment. He died in our place. Then on the third day, he is risen. The enemy has been defeated. And all who believe in him have eternal life. Salvation through judgment. That's a theme, not only of Esther 8 and 9, not only Christ's death on the cross, but all of Scripture. It is finished. It's a just decree. It's what the cross is. And all who believe in him are saved and rescued. And now we await the return of Christ and we share that message of salvation. Right? We represent Christ to a hurting and unjust and sin-sick world as we await his return. Salvation through judgment, through a just decree. And that is, no wonder, the way this passage ends is through a joyful celebration. Right? And that leads to number three. So we've seen a selfless plea, we've seen a just decree, and third and finally we see a joyful celebration. So think of all that's happened. Victory has come. Um, that the day has, has come when they've defended themselves, they defeated the enemy. And then we read in eight verse, chapter 8, verse uh, 15, or I'm sorry, before we get to that day, just as the decree is read nine months before it actually happens, in chapter 8, verse 15 says, Then Mordecai went out from the presence of the king in royal robes of blue and white with a great golden crown and a robe of fine linen and purple. And the city of Susa shouted and rejoiced. The Jews had light and gladness and joy and honor. Every province and in every city, whatever the king's command and his, wherever it reached, there was gladness and joy among the Jews, a feast and a holiday, and many of the peoples of the country declared themselves Jews for fear of the Jews had fallen on them. Then if you go to chapter 9, after that day happens, they're rescued, they defeat their enemies. Verse 17, this was on the 13th day of the month of Adar. And on the 14th day they rested and made that day a day of feasting and gladness. If you read on, verse 18, feasting and gladness again. Verse 19, feasting and gladness again. Now, we'll spend more time next week talking about the Feast of Purim, which is established here. But here, the point is simple. The right response to God's gracious deliverance is joy, honor, gladness, and celebration. That's the right response, right? Now, think of this. Mordecai is a wonderful picture here. Before we even consider the Jews as a whole, Mordecai is a wonderful picture here of what God has done for every one of his children. He, he was just a few chapters ago under the sentence of death. He and his people were hopeless in the face of impending violence against them. Right? That's, that's every one of us apart from Christ. Then Esther makes this selfless plea to the, the king on, on behalf of the people. And notice here, what happens to Mordecai? He is robed, Right? He's given this new robe. I, I, think of, I think of that hymn. When he shall come with trumpet sound, oh may I then in him be found. Dressed in his righteousness alone, faultless to stand before the throne. Right? That's what God does to us in Christ in the gospel. He clothes us in robes of righteousness. This great reversal. But think also of, of Esther's plea. 
Think of Jesus in Hebrews chapter 7. It says, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession, to plead for them. That's what Christ is doing right now on your behalf, Christian. He is pleading before the throne. And because of that, we are accepted by God. We think of this new edict and the joy that it brings. A decree of, of death is canceled out by a decree of life. What did Christ do on the cross? He canceled the record of debt that stood against us, Colossians 2, with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Think of this great reversal. Chapter 3, complete in total confusion, despair, and mourning as the Jews hear of this edict of death, weeping at the sentence of death. And now, chapter 8, joy, light, gladness, and honor. So friends, we're meant to look at this book that doesn't even mention the name of God once. And we're meant to say, who but God could do something like that? We're meant to respond with joy. Meant to look at our salvation, how we were in the throes of misery and sin, but through Christ, through the selfless plea and just decree, there's been a great reversal. We're meant to say, who could do something like that in my life? It must be God in his grace. And the response to that is joy. Friends, we should be the most joyous people in the world. Martin Lloyd-Jones, in his book, wonderful book called Spiritual Depression. He says this, in a world where everything has gone so sadly astray, we should be standing out as men and women apart, uh, as men and women apart, people characterized by a fundamental joy and certainty in spite of conditions, in spite of adversity. Friend, does that describe you? Can you say, even in the mess of this world, and it is a messy world, we're not saying just put a smile and pretend everything's okay. No, but, but can you say, even in the mess of this world, I have a, a fundamental joy and certainty in spite of all this adversity because I have been saved by Christ. What joy. If you're, if you're in Christ, if you're a Christian, the answer should be a resounding yes. Though sometimes we know it's tainted by weakness and discouragement. But friend, if you're here and you're not a Christian... Can I plead with you for a moment? Think of Paul saying, I plead with you on behalf of God to be reconciled to Christ. Only Jesus can bring you the resolve you're looking for. Only he can, can satisfy. So come to him. And not only will you be saved from the enemy of Satan, sin, and death, but you will have a lasting joy. Now, I think of this for us as, as Christians, just as we, as we come to a close. You know what happens to our joy? The further removed we are from the day we, we first experience salvation or, you know, whatever it may be, um, the more we forget the significance of the event, right? I think that's why our joy sort of diminishes. Remember when you first believed? Remember how incredible it was that you thought, man, God would accept me because of Christ, a sinner like me? You're overwhelmed, but we tend to get gospel amnesia. Happens to me all the time. 
and we lose sight of, of the most significant reality of our life and we let the trials and burdens and busyness of, of life in a fallen world rob us of our joy. And friends, we'll talk about this next week. This is why we need reminders of the gospel. This is why we gather week in and week out. This is why we take the Lord's Supper week in and week out. This is why in Esther 9, they didn't just say, hey, thanks God for saving us. But they said, we're establishing a feast. So we can remember this time and time and time again through the ages of what God has done to us. So let me encourage you, friend, as you consider the selfless plea of Christ on your behalf, as you consider the just decree of of the cross, Set reminders to reflect regularly on the gospel, to tell yourself your testimony that the joy in you may be stirred. Charles Spurgeon says this, my brethren and sistren, I don't think that's a word, he says it is in, it's in proportion as you get near to God that you enter into the full enjoyment of life, that life which Christ gives you and which Jesus Christ preserves in you. Friends, let's get near to God as we reflect on our gospel story. So I hope we've answered this, the question of chapters 8 and 9. How will God's people be rescued from the coming day of violence against them? It happens through a selfless plea, a just decree, and it leads to a joyful celebration. But more importantly, how are you and I rescued from the enemies of Satan, sin, and death? How, how, how does that story find resolve? through the selfless plea of Jesus Christ, through the just decree of his death and resurrection, that we may believe and joyfully celebrate salvation and then plead on behalf of others that they too may know the joy and rescue of salvation in Christ.